Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 21 for the first quarter of February 2012. Today, I'm getting back to some of the 2012 mythos with effectively the first of a two-part episode on geographic pole shifts. The basic idea of a pole shift is not as basic as one might think. Earth actually has two different kinds of poles, a spin axis or set of geographic poles, and a set of magnetic poles. Almost every time you hear people talk about a pole shift is going to happen in 2012 or whenever, they do not actually specify which kind of pole shift they're talking about. So you either have to ask for clarification or figure it out through context. You know, if they're talking about compasses no longer working, then that's a magnetic pole shift. If they're talking about continents being inundated by water, that's probably a geographic pole shift that they're talking about. But they're two very different things. In this particular episode, in what I said will be part one of a two-parter, I'm going to talk about the geographic or the spin axis changing. This episode is going to use Brent Miller's particular claims as the focal point, and I'm going to examine some of the evidence that people, or especially he, lists for a geographic pole shift or flip. In the next episode, I'm going to get more into what it would take to actually shift Earth's geographic poles suddenly, and how we know that we haven't already undergone a recent one. As with the last few episodes where I've talked about specific claims of specific people, I'm going to give you a bit of background into Brent Miller and his project called The Horizon Project. In this case, the word the, or the, is part of the actual name. Miller describes himself as an innovator and expert in e-commerce systems, advanced programming, database systems, and business methodology. And he's a person who has personally, and I quote, amassed over 30 United States patents for advancements in human interface recognition software, artificial intelligence applications, and data transmission protocols and analysis. Now you'll note in there that physics, geology, and astronomy are not present. Several years ago, Miller founded The Horizon Project, which you can find at thehorizonproject.com, in order to bring together what he claims is an unprecedented research team of astrophysicists, hard physicists, quantum physicists, geologists, linguists, archaeologists, otherists, and others who address the 2012 geographic pole shift problem. But, if you go to his website, there are only three names listed. Brent Miller, Brooks Agnew, and Michael Tsarian. Now, you may remember me talking about Brooks Agnew before, both in episode 4 on Comet Elenine, where he claimed that we don't know its orbit, and then extensively in my episode 8 on the Hollow Earth. Tsarian is someone that I'm not as familiar with, but the Horizon Project website describes him as, quote, a researcher with over 20 years of expertise in the study of lost civilizations and technologies. According to his Coast to Coast AM bio, he also studies the consequences to civilization of extraterrestrial involvement, and he claims that his work clarifies the disinformation about Atlantis and the lost continents of prehistory, showing that the orchestrated chaos of today's world has roots in ancient times. Uh Aha. In fact, 
If you search their entire website, the lengthy lists of scientists that Miller talks about in interviews simply is not there. If you go to their additional resources section, they claim that you can click a link to a, quote, partial list of several contributors and research sources which are listed within the trailing credits of their DVD. If you click it, you find Einstein, Heisenberg, Paul Dirac, Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, Michio Kaku, and others who I can guarantee had no contribution to their work, not the least reason because some of them were dead before Miller was born. They also have on this list of sources, and collaborators apparently, people like Graham Hancock, who's one of the big ancient aliens people, Mitch Batros, who's a big Earth Changes person, John Hogue, who claims to be an interpreter of Nostradamus and psychic in his own right, who was ripped to shreds in Penn and Teller's episode on the subject, and also they list as a source the Holy Bible. Besides these, on the Horizon Project website, they have a, quote, The Horizon Project has been featured on many media networks and news articles, where they list as the very first one, the Sci-Fi Channel. They also list Amazon.com. Their site hasn't been updated, that I can tell, since Miller's last Coast to Coast AM interview in January 2009, even though the copyright date does say 2011. Now, I'm not going through these in three minutes or so to try to give you some sort of ad hominem or poisoning the well attack against these people and this project. My point is that in every interview, Brent Miller claims that they have a huge team of scientists, and he emphasizes scientists and real science working with them and on the scientific evidence for their work, and that it's so overwhelming that they've actually now turned to prophecy in order to see what would actually happen, because the science is just totally there. But I haven't found any actual scientists working with them. One of the first rules of skepticism is to go to the primary sources of information and see what they say. If you claim one thing, but the slightest bit of digging shows something else, like the people who you work with, your skepticenses should be tingling. With that said, let's look at the evidence. The basic premise that Brent Miller argues for is that Earth's crust is going to shift as opposed to the entire planet actually shifting. These are two slightly different things that I'm going to get more into in the second part of this episode. He lays out several basic premises which he says all show that a geographic pole shift will happen. The first is that the Milky Way's black hole creates a quote-unquote dark rift, which is to say he thinks that the Milky Way's black hole spins out gravity waves that create a dark rift along the central plane of the galaxy. The second is that Miller claims that a property of this dark rift is that there is such intense gravitational force that A, it will cause Earth's poles to shift, and B, the dark rift contains a lot of junk material, my words, not his, such as asteroids and other planets that could impact Earth. Miller's next premise is that Earth's continents are kept afloat by Earth spinning on its axis. He points out that because Earth spins on its axis, the equatorial diameter is 42 kilometers greater than the polar diameter, and that this is proof that the continents are above sea level because they're pushed out by the Earth spinning, and that 42 kilometers is taller than the tallest mountains. If Earth stopped spinning, or if it started to spin around a different central axis, then the continents as we know them would sink, because there's no longer the centrifugal force to keep them out. 
Finally, he claims that this is what happened before, and that there's proof that it's happening now. He goes through many apparent points of evidence to show that this is what's happened. He claims specifically this happened around 11,000 BC, and something like it happened around 705 BC. So now, let's dissect each individual point. Now, when you look at the singular black hole at the center of every active galaxy, which they now uh, commonly accept, our center black hole is approximately 4 trillion miles across. It spins so fast that the tops and the bottom of the black hole literally open up. It is no longer a sphere. In fact, it opens up so wide, it is now a flat ribbon. It is a flat ribbon 4 trillion miles across. And its gravitational effect is rippled out in a uh, more like an LP disc on a record. Right. And all the stars in the spiral arms of the galaxy gravitate toward that gravitational wave and are spun around the center driving force, the engine of the galaxy, which is the black hole. Now, this gravitational wave exists on what the ancients called the dark rift. We call it the galactic plane. The, the dark rift is a flat disk of which all the stars in our Milky Way galaxy move up and down and then also um, spiral around in arms around the center of our galaxy. This dark rift has a very, very large, intense gravitational field to it. And it takes about 20 years for our planet and the solar system to pass through it. During this time, this is the external force that I'm referring to that we have been experiencing for the last 10 years, and it will take another 10 years to completely move through it. To put it succinctly, this is not correct. There is no dark rift, except unless you mean the dark dust lanes that you see throughout the Milky Way galaxy's plane in the sky at night. If the Milky Way's central supermassive black hole is throwing off gravitational waves at the location we are, you know, about 30,000 light years away, they would bend and flex us by maybe the width of an atom. Miller also claims that his quote-unquote astrophysicists, again, these mystery astrophysicists that he doesn't reference, have now verified that we're moving into the galactic plane, which we're not, as I addressed during the galactic alignment episodes, and his quantum mechanics guys have shown that the effects of gravity waves and what they would be. Now, because I really want to harp on this, here's a quote. Independent of the calendars, the quantum physicists have already confirmed that the center of our galaxy is a supermassive black hole. They've confirmed the location of the galactic plane. Uh, the astrophysicists have already mapped out the time in which we are going to be crossing the galactic plane, and they estimate it within two or three days of this calendar that we won't talk about at the end of 2012. This really shows that the people who work for him, A, don't know what they're doing, B, don't read the scientific literature, C, don't contribute to the scientific literature, and D, that he doesn't know what someone in the fields he's quoting should be doing. None of this has to do with quantum mechanics. Mapping out the galaxy is astronomy. Finding quote-unquote when we'll cross the actual galactic plane is astrophysics. Finding the supermassive black hole in the galaxy's center is astronomy and astrophysics. Gravity waves are general relativity, kind of the opposite of quantum mechanics. 
Gravitational effects are Newtonian mechanics or classical mechanics. So really, this is an example of throwing out very important sounding terminology and having no idea what they actually mean, besides the actual information being wrong. In sum, this will not be, quote, just like going into a black hole, as Miller also claims. And, as a consequence, his quote-unquote theory, his entire mechanism of how and why our geographic poles will shift, has now absolutely no basis in reality. The equator bulges. The geographic equator. It's like an egg. Like an egg. So it is approximately 42 kilometers wider at the equator than it is from the North and South Pole. So that is great. That is more than enough distance to explain all the land masses. In other words, if you were to stop the spinning of the Earth, just you could slow it down and stop it, the land masses at the equator would then have no centripetal force pushing them outward, and they would fall back into the ocean 42 kilometers down. That would basically engulf most of the planet in water. And, as it's, and if the north and south geographic poles were to be shifted and then you, the Earth be spun back up with a new equator, new land masses would appear so that the, the end result of the old land masses compared to the new land masses, you would see that entire civilizations had disappeared overnight. Their cities are now at the bottom of the ocean, and new land masses have risen to the surface. That's the next claim that I'm going to address, and it's really quite difficult not to resort to basic ad hominem attacks, because this really has almost no basis whatsoever in reality. Pretty much the only thing correct in this entire argument is that Earth's equatorial diameter is 46, I'm sorry, 42.6 kilometers greater than its polar diameter. And it's thought that this is due to Earth's rotation, that there will be a bulge around the middle, and that's an effect of billions of years of rotation. But other than that, nothing he says is correct. The continents don't float such that if Earth's spin were altered or stopped, they'd suddenly sink. He quotes timescales of several hours or days for an entire landmass to sink. Centripetal force does not keep them above water, although based on estimates I've seen, if Earth were to stop rotating, then we would see about one to one and a half kilometer of change in ocean level, depending upon where you are around the world. But that's because of the water being pushed out a bit by the centripetal force, not the land. Rather than centripetal force, what keeps the continents afloat is that they're less dense than the rock beneath. The average density of continental crust is about 2.7 grams per cubic centimeter. The average density of ocean crust is 3 grams per cubic centimeter, where water equals 1. That's why at zones where the ocean meets continental crust, the oceanic crust always goes underneath the continental crust. In addition, the continents have a route that goes down between about 20 and 70 kilometers, making an indentation into the underlying lithosphere. What this all boils down to is that the continents are not tenuously kept just above water just because Earth rotates. Claims that they are are incorrect and have no basis in what's the accepted structure of Earth as shown through models and evidence, such as gravity mapping and mapping the interior structure of the planet by earthquakes. So at this point, I've now shown that his basic mechanism for a pole shift is wrong, 
and that his claim of what would happen as a consequence wouldn't actually happen. But there's more. There are several pieces of historic evidence that Miller points to, the first being continental drift, which he does not understand. Miller claims that we've all been taught that continental drift, the continents moving around on the lithosphere, takes millions of years. He claims that this is wrong, that it happens very quickly. The evidence he points to is that the crust of the Atlantic Ocean is about the same age and has the same amount of dead animals and mud and silt on it as the crust in the Pacific Ocean. Therefore, they must be the same age, indicating that the Americas separated from Eurasia and Africa very quickly because of a previous pole shift. However, this is based on a complete misunderstanding of plate tectonics, specifically subduction. While the Atlantic Ocean is growing and the Mid-Atlantic Rift is creating new crust, the Pacific Ocean is also creating new crust, but it's sinking once it spreads to the continental plates. Next is Mayan alleged prophecy and the legend of Atlantis. Miller claims that the Mayans foresaw this event of the planet crossing the dark rift and souls being harvested. I've already addressed that in my interview with the Mayan scholar Dr. Normark in episode 14. But Atlantis is a new one, at least for this episode. But while it's new for this, not only episode, but podcast, it's a tired claim. Atlantis was introduced by Plato in the same sense that the Empire was introduced by George Lucas in Star Wars, a long time ago on an island far, far away. Miller uses the argument at populum fallacy to say that because everyone around the world has this legend of an advanced civilization that had flying machines and all died out quickly, they must have existed. And his twist is that they died out because of a pole shift, causing their island continent to sink into the ocean because Earth's spin no longer kept it afloat. I don't really want to get too much into Atlantis, that's not really my subject of focus, so instead I'll refer you to the show notes where I link to an 8-minute SGU 5x5 podcast episode. Another piece of historic evidence for a pole shift that he points to is the Mississippi River Delta. The Mississippi River um, flows from the north, is one of the longest rivers in the United States, other than the Colorado yep, River. That old man river. Yep. And uh, while it's traveling, it dumps silt in the delta, in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, this the rate at which it dumps silt has been very consistent ever since they were measuring the amount of silt it dumps into the, the delta region, the, you know, the mouth of the Mississippi. If you look at the, t- per year, if you look at the total volume of the silt, in that delta, you can extrapolate when the Mississippi River came to be. You, okay. All right, because every year it dumps so much, and so that accumulates there. It doesn't go anywhere. It accumulates. So if you look at the total amount of silt that's there and extrapolate how much silt is dumped every year and work backward in time, you can determine approximately when the Mississippi was, quote, created. Now, what do you think? The, the estimates are as early as 4,500 years ago, to, and the oldest estimate is 12,000 years ago. Now, unless you actually study young Earth creationist claims, you've probably never really heard of this, but it's actually one that a lot of young Earth creationists will point to to prove, apparently, that the Earth is young. Let's actually take a more consistent picture. Maybe it's that 
well, we know we had an ice age about 10,000 years ago, and retreating glaciers kind of carved up North America, including river basins. That's the scientific consensus in general that the current Mississippi River owes its course to the last ice age, and it has nothing to do with a pole shift, or young earth creationism. A fourth piece of alleged evidence for past pole shifts is an event around 705 BC. He claims that something happened to cause the earth to stop spinning, rotate backwards for about 10 hours, and then spin back the right way again, but slightly slower, such that the year had 365 days instead of 360. He claims as evidence for this that all 15 quote-unquote major calendar systems at the time were revised, quote, within just two to five years, end quote, of the event, and that a few civilizations even recorded this event, such as the Chinese astronomers recording that the, quote, sun set twice in one day, end quote, on that day. However, other than quotes from Miller, I could find absolutely no evidence to support this claim. And while I'm not saying that absence of evidence is evidence of absence, one should always be cautious when you cannot independently verify a claim. I would think that something that significant would be out there. And so this also gets back to the point I made earlier, that his people don't publish any of their quote-unquote findings. They just sell them in DVDs for $24.95. I should also mention that the mechanism that he thinks made this happen is Planet X. But for reasons that I'll discuss later on what it would actually take to shift the poles in next episode, a Planet X passing by could not do this. In addition, the claim is inconsistent. He states that so many people recorded that this event happened, and that many of them were excellent astronomers. But they must have been incompetent astronomers if they didn't notice a giant planet passing very close to Earth, since all ancient civilizations knew about Venus, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, which are much farther away than a nearby passing planet X. Just as there are many apparent lines of evidence of previous pole shifts, and now that I've at least cast serious doubt if not outright debunked them, there's the question of his present-day evidence that we are currently undergoing a pole shift, or about to undergo a pole shift. However, what this quote-unquote evidence amounts to is an attempt to anomaly hunt, and claim that whatever anomalies one finds, or just plain makes up, are proof of their hypothesis. First is the Chandler Wobble, or possibly Chandler Wobble, but I'll use the former pronunciation. Miller claims that the Chandler Wobble stopped and then became erratic, which he pronounces erotic at least once, not that I'm going to make fun of someone, but if you extrapolate his data back, he claims that in 1998 is when the Chandler Wobble stopped, and that's when the solar system first entered his dark rift. Further extrapolating his data, the Chandler Wobble is actually a kind of neat phenomenon, and it is a genuine pole shift, and I didn't know about it until I looked into this claim. The wobble is where the rotation axis changes by up to about 0.7 arc seconds, where, I discussed this in episode 2 on UFOs, 1 degree equals 60 arc minutes, and 1 arc minute is 60 arc seconds. So it's a very, very small amount, and it actually translates into a physical movement of about 15 meters, 
that's roughly 40-ish, 45-ish feet. The wobble has a period of about 433 days, and it's caused by Earth not being a perfect sphere, but rather more pear-shaped, since besides it having an equatorial bulge, as I discussed earlier, the north and south hemispheres are slightly asymmetric. Miller claims that the Chandler wobble was very steady until we entered his supposed dark rift, and then it stopped, and now it's erratic due to the gravity of the rift. However, he's wrong. There is simply no other way of putting it, he's wrong. The wobble has varied since it was discovered in the late 1800s, I'm assuming by a guy named Chandler, and it has been measured since then, and you can download the data for yourself through a link that I'll provide in the show notes. I graphed the X and Y position of it since 1980, again, this is in the show notes, where it has varied in size, but at no point during the last 30 years has it stopped, nor is it now behaving erratically, although I suppose depending upon your particular interests, it might be behaving erotically. The only explanation I have for his claim is that either A, he is completely ignorant of the actual data, perhaps one of his quantum mechanics told him wrong, or B, he's outright lying. Kind of like Greg Braden's stuff. The next claim that Miller has is that it's really a step in his pole shift scenario, and it's about earthquakes. It's one that you'll often hear not only related to 2012 doomsday proponents, but doomsday proponents in general, is that earthquakes are increasing. We are seeing more earthquakes. Sometimes the claim will be qualified with deadly or costly earthquakes. The latter is true. The former sort of is and sort of isn't. We are experiencing more deadly and costly earthquakes as time goes on for the very simple fact that there are more people and more places and things cost more. Very simple, very factual. More people in more places that cost more. Therefore, we're seeing more deadly and more costly earthquakes. It's also true that we are seeing more earthquakes, but that the number of large earthquakes has not changed significantly since the 1970s, much less so in the last few years. We did have an apparent lull in large earthquakes around 1990, but if you look before that and since then, the number has really not changed whatsoever of 7.5 magnitude and above. But the number of significantly smaller earthquakes, like magnitude 4 and 5, has. It's our ability to measure and locate the smaller ones that's increased, and hence they can be recorded. This is all according to the USGS, and again, I'll post links in the show notes. This is the source of my data, and it's also the source that Miller claims for his data. But even the people on the Above Top Secret Forum, which is a huge source for conspiracy claims, has posts from people claiming that they couldn't duplicate Miller's results. There are a few more claims that Miller points to, such as the ambiguous, weird weather is increasing that most Earth changes people point to, but I'm not really going to get into that because it's so nonspecific. Overall, the point that I want to leave you with in this episode is that it doesn't matter who makes the claims, whether it's Brent Miller's stuff as I focused on in this episode, or someone else. You need to look at the claims themselves, and first, verify if they're real. Most of Miller's claims are not real. For the ones that are, you need to look and see if there are other explanations, like with the earthquake data, or Miller's complete misunderstanding of plate tectonics, or, for example, the Mississippi River Delta stuff. 
Look at the actual hard scientific claims. Someone could always say, and I expect that one or two might be saying now, yelling into their MP3 player, that none of that matters. What about the archaeological or the historical record or the legends or the mythological lines of quote-unquote evidence that Miller and others bring up? I didn't address these much, that's true. But my point is, let's look at the ones that I did address. He's wrong about where we are in the galaxy. He's wrong about black holes and gravitational waves. He's wrong about what the dark rift is. He's wrong about Earth's continents staying afloat. He doesn't understand continental drift. There's a much more plausible explanation for the Mississippi River Delta. The 705 BC event did not happen. He's lying or making stuff up about the Chandler Wobble, and he doesn't understand how we detect earthquakes or was simply window shopping, much the same way that Greg Braden does with Earth's magnetic field data see episode 17. After all of that, why should I pay any attention to what he claims about Atlantis or ancient legends? And to broaden this, the same thing applies to conspiracy theories like the Apollo moon hoax, or UFO abductions like the Billy Meyer case. If I've shown that 20 of the most cited explanations or reasons for this hoax or conspiracy or whatever are wrong, and you have a 21st reason that you want me to debunk, why do you hang your hat on that? I've already done my job. With that... This episode is already running kind of long, so next time I'll be talking about what it would take for Earth to undergo a geographic pole shift and how we know that we're not already in one. This week's Q&A question comes from Nathan P. from Rhode Island, who asked, My question is involving Planet X not being detected. In your episode, you say something along the lines of, unless it has a cloak to disguise it from telescopes and from gravity, it's not there. What your view on the accusations, saying since Nibiru is a brown dwarf, it doesn't give off much light, therefore can't be detected. Now, I responded to Nathan's email a while ago, but I thought that it would make a good Q&A question as we get back to this 2012 stuff, and I actually will discuss this more in a future episode later this year on, quote, the fake story of Planet X, to follow up my historic story of Planet X. What I meant in that episode is that any planet or star interacts with light and gravity in some way. Even dark matter at least interacts gravitationally. We just can't see it because it doesn't interact with light, hence it's dark. So even if we can't visually see an object, be it a large rogue moon, a planet, or even a star, it would still exert a gravitational influence on other solar system objects. My point was that even with the technology from over 150 years ago, astronomers first saw that Uranus was not where it was supposed to be due to the gravity of an undiscovered object, and they were able to calculate where that object should be in the sky in order to account for the difference, and then they found it. Uranus is 20 times farther away from the sun than we are, and Neptune is 30 times farther away. But there are absolutely no perturbations seen in any planets, asteroids, nor comets within the orbit of Neptune that cannot be explained by objects that we already know about. Again, even if you can't see it visually, it must still interact gravitationally if it's anywhere nearby. That's what I meant by a cloak that would shield it from gravity. As for not seeing a brown dwarf, this is simply wrong. Planets don't quote-unquote give off any light to speak of, they mostly reflect light. 
a brown dwarf star gives off a lot of light, not just visible light. Almost all of the light is radiated in the infrared. If there were a brown dwarf star in the outer solar system, like within the orbit of Neptune, much less the inner solar system, as in inside of the asteroid belt, it would be the absolute brightest infrared source in the sky apart from the sun. And we've had all sky infrared surveys for about 20 to 30 years. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although it's probably easiest just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. And speaking of sending me email, I didn't actually get too much feedback this week beyond more of pronunciation stuff. You know, that, that gal and gale and other, other things. So I thought that I would read an ego-inflating comment left on iTunes by David R. He says, In a world where radio and TV lets no fact go checked, it's great to have one more voice of reasons added to the mix. Listen to AM Coast to Coast and watch the woo-woo on Discovery Channel if you must. But then, listen to this. Thanks, David. I also wanted to mention that I did send an email to Greg Braden's Heart Math Institute asking them about my critique of their data. The response that I got in part was, quote, The hypotheses of GCI, that's the Global Consciousness Initiative, is that collective emotions can influence such data since we all have our electromagnetic fields with frequencies overlapping the Schumann resonances. This is our hypothesis, and we are collecting data with our magnetometers, which measure Schumann resonances and other frequencies, of which four are up and running so far, to see if we can back up this claim. Our approach is absolutely scientific, with a professional astrophysicist, Dr. Kabarova, complimented us on the great content of the website and our real science data. Now, I should note at this point the obvious argument from authority about a professional astrophysicist complimenting them on their website and real scientific data. She goes on, I believe it is important to follow your heart in regards to what is true and real for you. You might be very aware of the fact that new science throughout history has been vigorously criticized until accepted as truth, or proven otherwise. It is important for GCI to remind people of their own power and importance to contribute to the shift of global consciousness in a more loving and harmonious world with their own contribution of being in personal coherence. I'm sorry, I I don't find much science in that. Which brings us to the puzzler, where we actually do get some real science, where each odd quarter episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was that John Lear claims that the surface gravity on the moon is two-thirds that of Earth, not one-sixth. What's an experiment that you could do with any available data that would show what gravity on the surface of the moon actually is? Congratulations goes to Chu, once again, on the SGU message boards for being the first to respond with a correct answer, although most of the people who responded to this puzzler had correct answers and they were all different, which I was quite pleased with. Chu's method was actually one that I had never heard of, and it's called the Apollo 14 SEQ Bay Pendulum, which I'll link to in the show notes. The basic idea 
is that the length of time it takes a pendulum to swing is exactly proportional to its length and the gravity field that it's in, or at least for well-behaved pendulums. This was actually something that Galileo figured out 400 years ago or so. The time is approximately equal to 2 pi times the square root of the length over the gravitational field. So, by measuring the time it takes a pendulum to swing on the moon, which they did actually accidentally in Apollo 14, and knowing the length of the string, you can easily derive the lunar gravity field. Leonard also sent in an answer, and he suggested an additional method. One was using the video of the hammer and the feather being dropped, where the time it takes is directly related to the acceleration, which is defined as the surface gravity. One of my favorite methods is actually the Apollo 16, quote, Grand Prix maneuver, where the astronauts drove the lunar rover very, very quickly and kicked up dust. Just like with Leonard's hammer and feather idea, you can measure the time it takes for the dust to fall and easily derive the gravity field. I happen to like the Apollo 16 Grand Prix maneuver because it also sort of gets rid of the whole idea of it was done in an atmosphere because the dust doesn't billow out because there's no air. This week's puzzler. The main segment was on geographic pole shifts. The puzzler is actually going to be answered in next week's episode because it's actually going to be the topic. How would we know if Earth had already experienced a global pole shift, if you assume that the whole doom and gloom stuff wouldn't actually happen? How could you tell? I ask because there are people out there who say that we already have, and that NASA is just kind of hiding it. Try to figure out the answer, and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss it during the next episode. There are no real announcements for this episode other than I'm recording this on Monday, January 30th, because I leave for the airport in, uh, looking at the clock, about eight hours for a conference. If, for some reason, this episode doesn't actually get posted at the right time, it's the hotel internet's fault. Not mine. And that, loyal listeners, wraps up the topic for the 21st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends and family. And while you're at it, go ahead and extrapolate yourself to a new level of consciousness. Consciousness.